Welcome to the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Mike Kresnick, and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune and Pastor Dusty White of Cormdale Church. And every Wednesday, we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. And today, we're having a conversation with the doctor, James K. Smith. <laughs> the doctor. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. James K. Smith. <laughs> it's great to be chatting with you guys. Thank you. Uh, so we're having this conversation after a... Uh, long weekend of lectures that Dr. Smith's done here in Omaha, and so uh, we're actually sitting around on couches and uh, and sort of distilling, hopefully, some of the uh, major insights from his work and uh, and from the the contributions he's seeking to make to our thinking about Christian thought. As you know, uh, if you're a, a listener to this podcast. Um, Man, one of the things we value is thinking theologically about the world, about culture, about the church. And uh, Dr. Smith's a fantastic mentor in that regard and and leader in that area. Um, one of the things that I appreciate most about you, Jamie, is that you have this capacity to sort of reflect meaningfully on where the culture is, reflect meaningfully on where the church is, reflect meaningfully on the experience of Christian discipleship and somehow relate all of those things mm-hmm. in ways that always seem interesting to me and, and resonate with like, yep, those are the questions I have. Um, so uh, we wanted to... You have, you've written enough that those who are unfamiliar with your work can go d- read and, in a sense, enter into sort of your conceptual world and the work you're trying to do. But um, I wanted to invite you to talk a little bit about what, t- I guess, two questions. One, what were the animating realities that got you interested in the things you're interested mm-hmm. in? And then two, what contribution are you seeking to make? So, you know, this sort of like, tell us about your life work, essentially, yeah. is kind of what I'm asking. Yeah, I, it's, it's a fun um, opportunity. Um, so let's think, how did I get doing this stuff? And I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit conscious of like going back too far, and I don't want to bore you about this. But I, I, I do think if, if I try to make sense of how did I end up doing what I'm doing, um, I think it goes back to, in a way, to my conversion. So I I became a Christian when I was 18 from a non-Christian home. And it was a pretty radical sort of, you know, conversion, like everything, my life's going to be, my whole high school career, I had very intentionally been planning to be an architect. I'd already explored at the University of Waterloo. They had a semester in Rome. That that has always been a trajectory. I took all the art classes, all the physics class. And then my last year of high school, which in Ontario back then was grade 13, it's kind of like A levels in England. If you're going to university, you went to a fifth year of high school. And I became a Christian day after my 18th birthday. And, uh, it was sort of like, okay, uh, everything's changed. And, um, by the way, my parents were totally freaking out. They thought I joined a cult and they didn't know what was going on. And I think it's because, uh, and, and given the the sort of the sector of Christianity that I came into, the only way I could imagine that was I'm called to ministry, right? Does that sound familiar? Mm -hmm. Uh, Um, so I, I, I need to be a pastor. The other thing that's kind of interesting, I I don't want this to sound too self-indulgent, but um, I, I had not cared about school at all. 
up until this point. In fact, I was just saying somebody the other day, I think the only book I really read in high school up until my fifth year was an autobiography by a hockey coach named Don Cherry, who's very notorious in Canada. And his, his autobiography was called Grapes. That was his nickname. That, that is literally the only book I remember reading in high school. And Darcy, this has similarities to your story yeah. a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So it's safe to say... When you became a Christian, you actually started thinking. <laughs> yes, and I started, the irony is, uh, f funny thing is when I came to my high school, uh, I was actually placed in this kind of gifted track because uh, I had exhibited abilities or whatever, but I didn't give a rip, like I just didn't care. But then as soon as I became a Christian, it's like all of those kind of latent intellectual gifts sort of like came to life or something. And so now I cared about things. So that quickly then turned to this sense of a call to ministry. And so I ended up going to a Bible college and with every expectation uh, that I would go into full-time pastoral work. Um, that got sidetracked a little, although this is, I mean, feel free to interrupt me because I'm, I'm thinking out loud a bit here. What, what happened was while I was at this Bible college, which is a totally conservative, almost fundamentalist, dispensationalist Bible college. Um, somehow I ran into the work of what we would call old Princeton theology, Charles Hodge, B.B. Warfield, A.A. Hodge, William G.T. Shedd, those kinds of guys. And um, lights just started really going on for me at this point. So I was really energized by... Uh, um, in a way, the theological tradition that they represented, but also just kind of the intellectual heft that they represented. And then um, at the same time, or maybe it was like my sophomore year in college, I two encounters, the work of Francis Schaeffer, hmm. um, and I read an essay by a philosopher named Alvin Plantinga called Advice to Christian Philosophers. And uh, all of a sudden, I started to realize that even the side of theology that I really cared about was kind of on this philosophical end of the spectrum. Like I can still remember reading William G.T. Shedd's Dogmatic Theology and his discussion of the Trinity was like two chapters of Aristotle and Plato, right? It was just a fact and I, it was a whole new world to me and all these kinds of lights go on for me. And so now I start struggling with, yeah, real vocational questions so that um, by the end of my college career, uh, I had sort of reached this point and I had a choice to make. Um, I had applied to seminaries in order to pursue a pastoral track. Uh, and then I applied to this one philosophy grad school in the reform tradition in Toronto called the Institute for Christian Studies. And I thought, um, do, am I going to go on this pastoral track or am I going to go on this more academic track? And interestingly, I remember getting some counsel at that point where somebody said to me, well, if you go the pastoral route, the pastoral training route, it's probably going to be a little bit hard for you to come back to academia if you thought that that was your calling and vocation. Hmm. Whereas their hunch was if I pursued the intellectual, the academic vocation, there was probably still going to be a lot of opportunities to serve the church hmm. 
from that space. Mm-hmm. That sounds, and it, mm-hmm. that might have been false, but that was kind of the wisdom I took. So I ended up taking that intellectual track and uh, academic tracks, I should say, academic track, and go doing an MA in philosophy at um, the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto, which was also in the Reformed tradition and specifically the Kuyperian tradition. So it's really where my intellectual framework gelled, and. Um, I think I've, I was always at peace as soon as I made that decision. Like there was a, a, and there was something, you know, I was already married and had at least one kid by this point. And, um, it was something we certainly discerned together. And it's interesting every once in a while, I do still get to preach some, I, I'm, I'm very committed to our, our local congregation. Um, and I love, you know, I want to be a churchman. Um, but I, I, I feel I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. But every once in a while I get this kind of like just slight uh, thorn in my side. It's like, uh, um, is pastoral ministry something to you? It's very brief and fleeting because then I remember how horrible pastoral ministry is. (laughs) Um, But I'll say, I'll, I'll, I'll pause after this. I'll say, when I was young, I think the reason I felt called to this pastoral ministry was mostly because I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to, and I think like a lot of young guys, probably I thought of this pastoral ministry as primarily preaching and I wanted to be a teacher. And so that was the track I was going to go. Interestingly. Now, if I'm ever tempted by uh, pastoral ministry, it's actually less preaching and more pastoral care. It's like helping people die, helping people, mourn, helping people marry, how uh, that, uh, the pastoral care side of it attracts me more now. So that's, that's at least part of the story. Okay, good. So you're like the least boring philosopher that I know. <laughs> well, Why is that? Like, what, cause what's part of what's fascinating to me is you, you have an incredible capacity philosophically, mm. but you're also very like down to earth with that. Mm. And I'm wondering, is that like, mm. A feature of your wiring is that an intentional like what what why are you that way that's a great question um so let's let's think out loud about this um so let me go back in that story just a little bit so i became a christian through the plymouth brethren tradition the plymouth brethren did not have ordained pastors so it was all sort of lay ministry and it was almost like old school Methodist circuit rider kind of ministry where you would, you would go and you'd go to a, an assembly, you know, a few towns away, you'd preach in the morning, a family would take you home in the afternoon, you'd have dinner, you'd nap and you'd go back and you'd preach at night and then you go back home. I started preaching when I was 19, preached my first sermon Christmas when I was 19. And by the time I was doing later undergrad and then my master's degree, I was preaching at a circuit of about a dozen churches in Southwestern Ontario, that experience of preaching, I think, and you and I have talked about this, Bob, I I think preachers are often better translators because the nature of the genre of the sermon and the, and the kind of audience a congregation is just teaches you, you have to kind of move the cookies to lower shelves for people to get a handle on this. So I, I, now that I think back on it, I think that is not a, insignificant part of my formation. The other factor maybe I would say is um, Rich Mao was for me the exemplar of the kind of Christian philosopher I wanted to be. So um, 
For those who don't know, the, the, I teach at the Calvin College Philosophy Department. We have this sort of panoply of saints who came out of that department, like Alvin Plantinga, who I mentioned, Nicholas Wolterstorff, uh, and Richard Mao was another. Rich was a longtime president at Fuller Seminary. Um, interestingly, Nick and Al were like the philosophers' philosophers. You know, went to Yale and Notre yeah. Dame and did all the hardcore stuff that were read by the six other specialists in their field who could get it. Rich, I think the reason I see myself in Rich's footsteps is he modeled somebody who wanted to use his philosophical gifts to serve the church and saw that actually there was a lot of philosophical need, like there was need for philosophical reflection and discernment in the lived body of Christ. He saw actually a hunger for it if people would meet them where they were. Um, and he modeled for me the example of a philosopher who also wasn't too worried about people calling him a popularizer. I mean, people have to realize if you're in the academy, almost the worst thing you can be called is a popularizer. And when I was young, I think I really struggled with that. Um, you, you know, I, I spent the first decade of my career dotting my I's, crossing my T's, and doing my homework to establish myself as a specialist in a subdiscipline of advanced philosophy. And I actually think all kinds of academics who are Christians who nonetheless might want to be public intellectuals need to spend the first decade just becoming the best academics they can be within their fields. Cause then it actually, it earns you credibility and standing to then speak wider. So I did that, but then I started to realize, um, uh, I had some gifts or capacity to do this kind of translation work. And um, I, I, there was just a lot of affirmation of that. And I realized a lot of need for it. And so at first I started to feel kind of embarrassed about that. It's like, oh, I'm taking the easy route or something like that. I, I've now, I, I think more maturely, I think uh, I've felt liberated from that. First, because I think it's my calling. Do you know what I mean? So I shouldn't, I shouldn't feel embarrassed uh, about that. Secondly, I am blessed to be part of an academic department that really recognizes a diversity of gifts of kinds of scholarship. So you've got high-powered, advanced, specialized scholarship, but then outreach scholarship that translates. And both of those count as scholarship where I come from, which is huge. But then um, third, I would say, I just realized that... Um, that was probably more my pride talking than anything. Do you know what I mean? Like I was worried about, and, and to be honest, if, if this doesn't sound too obnoxious, I actually think it's harder to do the translation work than it is to talk in the jargon of a subdiscipline specialty where the six people who are doing the same thing know exactly what you're talking about. I mean, or they're, or they're hard in different ways. Mm -hmm. So once I, once I got to that point, I was, I've been very happy to embrace that. And I'm grateful to be part of an institution that sort of unleashes me to do that. What do you see as <clears throat> your life work or your, your, particular, the contribution you're seeking to make. So it sounds like you see yourself as a, one, a philosopher, an academic one, but two, as a, a translator and one doing that in a, as an outreach philosopher. Yeah. What's, what do you, what's your sort of, here's what I want to do for the world. Yeah. It, I would say it's, it's a great question. I'm honored to be asked it. Um, I, I would say, I just want to highlight how much God's providence channeled me into what I'm doing now quite beyond my own intentions and what I, if you would have asked me 15 years ago, if I'd be doing what I'm doing now, 
I would never have had a clue about that. But now if I look back retroactively and see why God moved me in certain places in proximity to certain colleagues who were doing certain work that prompted me to do things, I, I see the tapestry now. And um, I would say um, uh, coming to Calvin College and in particularly working alongside my colleague John Whitfleet at the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship has been a huge catalyst for, and, and basically in some ways I'm doing what I'm doing because John asked me to do it. Hmm. You know, he said, you know what, we need philosophers who are thinking about the dynamics between worldview and worship. Um, and once, once he sort of put that challenge to me and put that invitation to me, all of a sudden, a lot of my background formation in French philosophy, I, I'm, I'm like, oh, wait, Foucault was talking about this in the 70s when he wrote Discipline and Punish. Do you know what I mean? And this is like, and, and now he, he wasn't doing with it what I'm going to do with it. But now all my work in Derrida and things sort of came alive in a new way. I think now retroactively, if I looked back and said, okay, well, what has been that project? Um, I'm not going to have a great answer to this, but I'll, I'm going to keep thinking about it. I, I, um, some days I put it this way. I'm trying to teach evangelicals to be Catholic. There's <laughs> a small C in case that's freaking yeah. anybody out. But do you know what I mean? In other words, I do think a big part of my passion and energy is helping contemporary North American evangelical Protestants realize that they are part of a body that is ancient and historic and Catholic in the sense of this gift of a heritage across time that comes to us that has treasure troves of wisdom for us to figure out how to live life going forward. So, and this is why I think St. Augustine then also became so crucial to me because I, I just see him as this enduring perennial source of wisdom who interestingly is read in every philosophy department in the country. So it gave me a kind of point of contact, but uh, um, to, to invite Protestants to realize that the church is older than their youth pastor and that they are, no matter where they find themselves, they, they are, uh, um, they should, they should want to see themselves as part of this much longer conversation led by the spirit. And I think, um, you could probably categorize a bunch of my work in that frame, helping evangelicals become Catholic. So a minute ago, you mentioned how you were asked into this recent yeah. work. How much of that, so you, and then you also said you're beginning to see the tapestry. How much of that hard work before was just hard work, you know? And, and then what would your counsel be to just doing hard work in your early years when it comes to thinking rightly and understanding? Yeah, that's a very good question. It, yeah, it was in, in a way... It's almost like when I was doing that earlier work, I had more proximate penultimate goals in mind and not until later when in a way this vocation was kind of pulled out of me by God putting people in my life, did I then see how it all had a snowball accumulating effect. But in the midst of it, it was about, I mean, in some ways it was just saying, I feel called to be a Christian philosopher. I think the best place for me to do that is from uh, a credibility in the academy. 
and therefore in some ways to reach my ultimate goal of being a credible public Christian witness in the academy, I need to be a good academician. And so just get down to work and do what you need to do. And I, I don't, fortunately, I don't think I ever felt like I was just like writing papers to get tenure, picking some puzzle to solve, because I feel like the nature of my work had always, this is what I learned, I would say at the Institute for Christian Studies, I had always identified fundamental philosophical questions that resonated with my sort of Christian concerns and interests. But yeah, at, at the end of the day, it was just like the ploddingness of that. And um, now I see later how that gets reactivated once I'd sort of figured something out. Yeah. Are you, you strike me as a person that has lots of interests. And I wonder if you like, are you the kind of person who just like, you can go deep in multiple categories or do, they, do all these interests sort of cohere in some mystical mm. way that we don't maybe see? Because it's mm. interesting to me that you can like, you can do French postmoderns and you can do Augustine and you can do movies. You know what I mean? Like, there's, I think that's one of the things, one of the things that makes you a good translator is you can say, oh, here's what this movie, you know, start here and let me show you how there's a philosophical. So it's just interesting to me that it seems like for a person who seems like they have to be very specialized to get to a place in their field where they are credible, you're actually also sort of a generalist in some healthy ways. No, thanks for that. I, I, um, I do have quite promiscuous curiosity. Um, maybe, maybe we should back up and say anybody who is becoming a master and a specialist of anything, uh, still has to be a human being. Do you know what I mean? So, yes. I, and I think one of the great temptations is, uh, in and mm. particularly in an age that so values specialization, is that you just lose yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you, your identity becomes mm. this specialist endeavor of which you are becoming a master. And and I think, um, you know, we were talking earlier today about how much small group saved our lives in in grad school. Uh, I think it was crucial that they weren't academics. Because then you just remembered, oh, you know what? This is not the whole world. So in that sense, I hope I've always been sort of cultivating other interests. That said, however, I do think um, I, that was a, I was a bit monstrous as a young uh, student and scholar precisely because I felt like I was making up for a lifetime of not learning. And so I was so narrowly fixated on Bible, theology, books, you know what I mean? That kind of like, I would never ever read anything but theology, right? Because how, how could I waste time on anything else? I, I'm almost embarrassed by that now because uh, now I hardly read, well, uh, I, I have very, like I read for work, during work hours. Hmm. I, I don't read theology at night. Yeah. I don't read philosophy at night. I read poetry, fiction, criticism, uh, uh, creative nonfiction, um, biographies. So, so there's something about, um, I, I don't know that I have an account of all it, how it all coheres, but I actually love diving into things that I don't know what I'm going to do with it. Hmm. Do you know I mean? So I don't yes. want to, because otherwise you're immediately instrumentalizing everything that you're doing. Do you know? So mm-hmm. wh- when I read um, uh, a biography of Richard Nixon or something, you know what I mean? It's like, I, 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 I'm just interested. Actually, I, I wish I could remember the, the, the author I have in mind because it was like this psychological portrait of Nixon. And I, I'm just really intrigued by that. So I dive into it. Not until later then do I realize, oh, this is totally going to be in my book on Augustine. Hmm. Right. So I, I do have the luxury. It's a blessing to have a line of work where almost all of your loves can get incorporated into that. Um, 
but uh, yeah, the the sort of range of interest, and I, I'm just. I love it's another reason why I stay in a Christian liberal arts context is because I have colleagues who are just doing fascinating work in physics and sociology and uh, political science and nutrition science and you, you just I'm I'm a perpetual student so I'm grateful to be in a context where that doesn't go away that is super helpful because mm. I don't even think you have to be a philosopher or a theologian or a pastor to appreciate that because what I hear you saying is like look I'm going to specialize in this, but I'm going to remain human. Yeah. I think that's a gift to culture, mm. to a city, mm. <laughs> to mm. the church mm. for sure. Mm. Cause you're just, you're just saying, I refuse to just get sucked into one thing. Yep. I'm going to let my imagination run wild. Yeah. It might. So this, this might be, if, if we're looking for a, so co a cohering center, maybe another theme of the contribution that I'm going for is just unbridled holism mm. about how we think of who we are and what we're about. And interestingly, now if I think about how did I get to care about that, uh, both my training in this reformational philosophical tradition primed me for that, but I would also say my charismatic experience also just awoken me, uh, um, awoke me, awakened me, uh, to, um, yeah, features of being human. Like, uh, to be perfectly honest, like, I still remember the first day I raised my hands in church. And it's and it was basically like an experience of remembering you had a body <laughs> and emotions <laughs> yeah. and that God made all of them, right? So, I, yeah, maybe that, that sense of holism, it's, it's one of the reasons why I think I'm so passionate about the arts and coming up with, not that I can do the arts, but that I can uh, uh, make a philosophical case for why the arts are so significant to being human and ultimately, I think, mission. Because they, they pluck strings in us that don't get played by our didactic endeavors. Yeah. So can I ask you to reflect just briefly philosophically on, as a layperson, sort of trying to enter into your field and your... And, and the the thoughts and critiques you're putting forward. Here's what I see. I see Augustinian anthropology, which is sort of reformed, but also Catholic, yeah. right? Yeah. In the right way. I see um, the philosophy of, we've talked about like Dallas Willard. I don't know that you call him an influence, but just that, 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 that focus on sort of the, um, the humanity of what does it mean to be a human person and then to be formed in the soul or formed as a person in these categories of virtue character. So I don't, I don't know what the tradition behind that is, but just that mm -hmm. emphasis. Mm -hmm. So Augustine anthropology, character formation mm -hmm. as the core of Christian virtue. Mm -hmm. um, and then ecclesiology in a sense of mm -hmm. like the, the primacy and importance of the church. Am I reading that correct? Am I seeing Absolutely. those categories? Yeah. As, are those yeah, actually there? Sure. For sure. Well, yeah. What would you add to them if, if you're yeah, saying that's like that's interesting? So I, I'm, um, yeah, for sure. And and what I hope is those those are a braid, right? Yes. Like those three streams yes. are intertwined. Um, uh, there is also, I would say, um, or I hope, there's something about a concern for really careful, nuanced, informed cultural criticism as, um, uh, that is intellectually responsible 
that is uh, attuned to the environment and time in which we find ourselves. And yeah, understanding the times, that kind of dynamic and, and seeing philosophy as a servant in that project. So we would sort of look to maybe Schaefer or Hauerwas as probably, other... I, I would say Schaefer is probably, uh, um, you know, some people are kind of embarrassed by Schaefer and the, the, some some parts of later Schaefer I would be embarrassed by too, but I'm usually pretty happy to sign up and say, I happily see myself in a certain legacy of Francis Schaefer. He was not a philosopher hmm. and a specialist, and therefore uh, he's kind of ham-fisted about some of the history of philosophy. Fair. Um, I, I think maybe this is also where Charles Taylor yeah. is is an important part for me um, he, as an engaged academic who is trying to make sense of the times and um, what I've learned a lot from Taylor and Oliver O'Donovan who's a British theologian and ethicist who's been really significant for me I would say over the last six or seven years is a real attunement to history hmm. that 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 there is always a genealogy of how we got to where we are right now and I think th this is a kind of a new passion for me because I think Christians tend to be a bit static and atemporal in how they think about cultural analysis. They think they have these sort of perennial categories that they can just place on things. Whereas I think we have to be very attuned historical creatures who then realize that there's zigs and zags of history and contingencies of history that got us to this moment. And you have to be really ad hoc in the way that you do that. And, um, uh, I, I, I'm, I, I, when I get frustrated with fellow evangelicals, it's often because I think they are just intellectually irresponsible in how they, um, do that kind of analysis. I think it's very flat-footed and, and has a tin ear for, for some of those nuances. Yeah. I, I, I guess maybe I always count it as success if people would read my stuff and come away with a sense of how messy the world is. Hmm. Do you know I, mean? I, I want them to come away with a sense of a sort of centering set of convictions and animating principles. But but at the end of the day, I also want them to come away with a sense that, man, um, we're not going to figure this all out, Do you know, or, mm. or uh, um, and, and this is where Which is, the, it's a blessing to hear a philosopher say yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, and, and uh, um, now my philosopher colleagues who are analytic philosophers will say, well, that's, of course, what a continental philosopher <laughs> would say. But uh, um, I, I think it's, you see it in Augustine. So the, the book that's coming out in the fall, Awaiting the King on Reforming Public Theology, Augustine's City of God is really the kind of anchoring text there. And what I just think is when you see Augustine a analyzing the Roman Empire, it is a mixed bag. You know, it's just a very mixed bag. On, on the one hand, it's a trenchant criticism of the idolatries. On the other hand, and it's like, hey, beats the barbarian horde. So there's the, I, I'm looking for that kind of complexity. I think complexity is not something Christians should fear. I think it's something that we should embrace. Well, I think the one of the reasons I sort of have a man crush on you uh, unapologetically. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah actually, on. we can say that here. This is a, this is a, safe, this is a safe, honest community. Um, is that... I would say that as that I had intuitions that I feel like you put words to yeah. for me. So when I, you know, I had these intuitions about here's, here's how I think Christians need to relate to culture. And I, I'm not, I don't really see it the way I want to. And here's what I think the church needs to do in worship, but I'm not sure where to look for that. And so I felt like as a church planter, I was sort of, 
intuiting certain things about the church's relationship to culture and to history. And then, and then I was, and what, so when I started reading your stuff, I was like, Oh Mm. yeah, yeah, right here, this. Mm. And what it did for me is it gave me actually the feeling like I'm not crazy to sense these things and oh good there's people who know what they're doing in these areas that can be sort of tour guides for me and and translators of what how i need to sharpen my own thinking in these areas so i've really appreciated that about your work and i think i think i speak for probably many who that means a lot to me Uh, in some ways that's the most encouraging thing because i I feel like uh, um if i if people read my stuff it's like okay you put into words what i had been sort of had been rumbling around for me i'm like Fantastic. Because to be real, this is really, truly honest. You know, Stanley Hauerwas once said, uh, novelty in theology is a sin. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, in a way, from Desiring the Kingdom onward, I don't think it's novel. But it is just maybe a new synthesis of a bunch of different streams of thinking that then is articulated in a certain kind of package that people are like, you you just named what I've been sort of going for. So I, that, that means a lot. That's encouraging to me. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. Well, if you want to find out more about James K.A. Smith and all the books that he uh, has written and the books that he will soon be writing uh, coming out this fall, Awaiting the King, you can go to jameskasmith.com. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this week. Thanks for joining us. And we hope that you join us next Wednesday for another Wednesday conversation.